Well, this evening we will consider together the second commandment from God's moral and eternal law. And last Sunday evening, we heard from God's word that the first commandment is a summons to true worship. The first commandment calls us to love God with all that we are and all that we have. We are to worship God and God alone and dethrone every idol of our heart. So if the first commandment calls us to worship God alone in spirit and truth, the second commandment then calls us to worship God according to how he tells us to worship him. The first commandment is about who we worship. And the second commandment is about how we worship. So if you forget everything else I say this evening, remember this. This is the heart of the second commandment. It is worshiping the right God rightly. You can think about it the way the Heidelberg and the Westminster Shorter Catechisms put it. We are called to worship God in the ways he commands. Those are the duties required of us. And we are forbidden from worshiping God in ways he has not commanded. And this is not easy for us. The evil devices of our heart often lead us astray and we are so easily prone to worship God in a way that feels best rather than worship God in the way that he commands. But worshiping God rightly is of eternal consequence. Consider the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. We read this, that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them And they died before the Lord. Now this, of course, is a harrowing picture for us to consider. The sons of Aaron were playing fast and loose with the worship of the triune God. And notice what the text tells us in Leviticus chapter 10. It says that they offered this unauthorized fire before the Lord. So they are still offering this unauthorized fire to the Lord, to the one true God, So it's not that they are worshiping other gods, but rather it is that they are worshiping the true God wrongly. It's not that they are violating the first commandment, but that they are violating the second commandment. They are worshiping the true God in a way which he had not commanded them, as Leviticus chapter 10 says. So as we we approach this second commandment together, we need to approach it in all humility. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character does not change. And so this story in Leviticus 10 should should set the tone for us uh, when we think about what it means to worship God rightly, what is at stake. You see, it's not about us in worship. It's not about our tastes, our preferences, or our emotions. It's all about God. 
When we gather as God's people in corporate worship, as we are doing here tonight, it's all about him. I've mentioned before that in the Bible, the Ten Commandments are originally called the Ten Words, and maybe you've noticed that footnote in your ESV Bibles uh, in Exodus chapter 34 that tells you that the Hebrew phrase there, it means the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. And this is significant because the Ten Commandments are often more than just commands. They will include warnings and promises. And so it's appropriate to call them uh, the ten words because these are the ten times that God speaks commandments and recounts Israel's history and gives warnings and gives promises. And our text this evening, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, the second commandment is a perfect example of this. What we find in in our text is a command, a warning, and a promise. And I want to look at each of these this evening, the command, the warning, and the promise, and then consider some implications for our worship of the triune God. So let's begin together with the command that God gives. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now this is a prohibition of representing God in any way, shape, or form and worshiping him through this visible representation. One commentator writes this, the commandment forbids certain liturgical actions. And what are those liturgical actions that are forbidden? Well, that would be showing reverence or giving worship to any man-made constructs, images, or any representation of the one divine essence. And why does God give this command to his people? Why does he give us this command? What does it reveal about his character, who he is? Well, God gives this command because he is utterly transcendent. He is the one true, living, and eternal God, invisible and uncreated. And therefore, any attempt any attempt to capture the divine essence by way of representation, it is an offense against an incomprehensible God. God transcends our comprehension. He is infinite and eternal. And as the Apostle Paul writes in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And so the point is this. When we create an an image or representation of God for worship, we make imminent what is utterly transcendent. We make finite what is infinite. We make temporal what is utterly eternal. John Calvin writes that the threefold prohibition here in Exodus chapter 20, 
this threefold prohibition of a carved image representing something in heaven, uh, on earth, and the waters beneath. Uh, This is given because ancient cultures tried to capture the divine essence in these three different spaces. And so it's not that all art is outlawed or that digital photography here is being prohibited. No, it, it is the depiction of God and the worship of that depiction that is prohibited. So the second word reveals something about our human nature. As human beings, we yearn for tangible realities. We want physical signs and we want to taste, touch, smell, hear, and see for ourselves that God is. And so this command really becomes a paradigm for the Christian life. As disciples of Christ, we are those who are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We look ahead to things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. And sometimes in our fleshly imaginations, we say to ourselves things like, well, if only God would give me a sign, if only he would show me something physical, then I will trust him. Well, brothers and sisters, even in the days of Jesus, many saw with their own eyes and yet did not believe. Our Lord, in fact, declares woes upon those cities who received the visible revelation of the incarnate Christ and yet rejected him. Jesus says there is stricter judgment upon those who see and yet do not believe. And while we do walk by faith and not by sight, God does give us physical signs today of transcendent spiritual realities. And God promises to meet us in these signs. Our risen Lord encounters us in the sacrament through the sign and seal of the bread and wine. And he gives us his very self as we partake by faith. Another significant point here is that in the Bible, in the Bible hearing is often equated with obedience. To hear is to be subject to the commands of God. To listen is to be subject to the just judgment of God. Think of Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. When Yahweh summons Israel to incline their ears, he is calling them to live a life of obedience, to walk by faith. Our Christian walk now is one that is audible, not visual. And this is why Martin Luther famously says that the Christian organ is the ear. We hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit quickens our hearts and brings about new life. And as the Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God brings about saving faith through the instrument of his word and the spirit's power at work in our hearts. We hear and receive what God declares and we either respond in faith or we harden our hearts. 
And this is why the word of God must remain central in all that we do. All of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it is breathed out by God. And so this book that we have, this book is not like any other book. This isn't just a book of generic wisdom among other books of generic wisdom. No, this is the very word of life, the source of truth. And if we want to learn what it means to live wisely, we must search the scriptures and hear the voice of God. But I must warn you that to to hear is to receive. And if you hear and yet do not believe, if you listen and yet harden your heart, you will be subject to greater judgment. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Every who, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. So God commands the right worship of the right God. And then in verse five and six, we see this grave warning, but this amazing promise. God says this in Exodus chapter 20, verses five and six. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Martin Luther has this wonderful insight about the warning and the promise. And it is this, that Actually, this covenantal warning and promise, it applies to all of the 10 words, the entire moral law of God. And this is certainly, certainly true. As God's covenant people, we are subject to both warning and promise. If we are in Christ, we are Abraham's heirs, according to the promise. And this means that we are bound to God's everlasting covenant. Look at the word that God uses here. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy today, we think of wanting what other people have. We think of envy. But as Origen, one of the great fathers of the church says, when God says he is a jealous God, he is speaking as a jealous bridegroom to warn his bride to flee fornication. Yahweh demands his people's exclusive worship and right worship. Because Israel is bound by covenantal promise, God will hold her to those promises and he will warn her of the danger that awaits if she forsakes her beloved. And as God himself declares, he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Now, when we think about visiting someone, we normally think about a nice get-together. Maybe we have coffee, donuts, bagels. But here, this word visit in, in the Hebrew language, it has this sense of punish. And so God is saying that he will visit. He is saying that he will punish. He does not allow sin to go unpunished. And we see this directly fulfilled in 
the northern northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam violates this second commandment and he sets up a golden calf in Dan, which by the way, you can still see the actual foundations uh, of this site. They're thousands of years old. And Jeroboam, he doesn't learn from the sins of Israel at Sinai and the golden calf. Uh, No, in 1 Kings 12, we read that he sets up two golden calves and that all the subsequent kings of Israel fall into sin like Jeroboam. And yet, as one writer puts it, Yahweh arrests each dynasty after three or four generations. He doesn't let liturgical idolatry go on forever. God delivers on his promise to visit iniquity. And don't miss this part of the warning either. God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. God tells us that those who worship God according to human innovation, they actually hate God. In other words, if if we prioritize and we elevate human innovation in worship, rather than hear and obey the way that God commands us to worship, we become walking contradictions. It is impossible to follow the first word and to reject the second word. Either we love God alone and that means that we worship him according to how he prescribes, or we only claim to love him And our rejection of his standards for worship actually prove that we hate him. Again, thinking of the way we we relate to God through covenant as the people of God, as, as the church, we are his bride. And in the same way, a bride who loves her husband will seek to honor him. So too, the church who loves her bridegroom, who loves the Lord Jesus, will seek to honor his name in holy worship. And God shows his mercy to be far more than we could ever imagine. Yes, God is jealous for our right worship. Yes, God will punish and visit sin. But as we read and hear in verse six, our triune God will show steadfast love to thousands or to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And immediately you notice the contrast here between the warning and the promise. God promises to visit iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but he will show steadfast love to thousands or to the thousandth generation. In other words, God's love is limitless. It is boundless. And God is pleased to show his love and kindness towards us when we seek his face. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And when God says he shows steadfast love, it is truly all divine mercy. This is one of the most important words in the Old Testament, steadfast love. It's one word in the Hebrew and it reveals the grace of God. We deserve death and condemnation. We deserve the just judgment. 
And yet God has poured out his love and mercy towards us in Christ. This is the gospel. This is a presentation of the gospel given to us in this second word at Sinai. This is a foreshadowing of Christ. The steadfast love of God is ultimately revealed on the cross. On the cross. Christ's wounds, those wounds should have been our wounds. His death was the one we deserved. And if we have been raised with Christ and born again to a new and living hope, we hear and receive. And as Christ says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Well, we've seen the command and the warning and the promise and the gospel all in this second word. And now I want to think about two specific implications. What does this mean for us in public worship? When we gather here each Lord's Day and we come into the special presence of our God. And secondly, what does this mean for us in private worship? in our homes, and throughout our daily life. Well, firstly, the second word means that we worship God according to how he prescribes. And in our Reformed tradition, we call this the regulative principle of worship. And essentially, what this means is that everything we do when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day Everything we do must be derived from the scriptures. And if it isn't derived from the scriptures, then we don't do it. We don't observe it. If you look at your bulletin and you look at the beginning of this worship service, from the call to worship to the benediction at the end, the regulative principle, it teaches us that everything is to be measured against the word of God what we sing, what we pray, what we confess, what we proclaim, how we partake of the Lord's Supper, and so on. And this is not a form of legalism. This isn't the church saying that we have some secret or higher way of attaining favor with God because of how we worship. No, the heart of this principle, the regulative principle, the heart of it is to make our worship God-centered centered on the Bible, centered on what the scriptures say and teach rather than human innovation, rather than having humans at the center of worship. And so, and so we must constantly be asking, is our worship biblical? It is not enough to simply say, well, Paul says do all things decently and in good order. This is certainly true and this is Necessary, but the Bible provides us with a robust doctrine of worship, a robust doctrine of what we do each Lord's Day as we gather and proclaim that Christ is Lord over all things. In his excellent book on the Ten Commandments, the Reverend Michael Horton talks about this second word and he comments on the great peril, one of the great perils uh, in our churches today. He laments the way that we have made church consumeristic. 
how our liturgy, uh, or lack thereof, has become increasingly geared towards viewing people as a product, and thus making corporate worship about what can fill the most amount of pews. And Horton goes on to say this, that in contrast, biblical, God-centered, Christ-focused worship looks to the word and the sacraments, not to entertainment to inspire worship. Church is not a place for us to be entertained. It is rather a place for us to hear and to receive the word of God and to commune with him, with our triune God, creator of heaven and earth in his special presence. And so the primacy of the word and the sacrament, that should be the hallmark of every Bible-believing church. Right worship is God-centered rather than human-centered. And that means we need to worship God on God's terms rather than our terms. If you're looking for resources that really spell that out, that put some flesh on the bones, I'd be happy to recommend a few resources to you after the service. The visible church today is often like the visible church in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah Jeremiah ministered to a people who thought that everything was good when in reality the people of God were profaning his name in their worship. The sanctuary was being cared for, the tithes were coming in, people were involved in worship. But the prophet Jeremiah reveals that the people of God were listening to false shepherds, to false messengers. These were ministers who had their own agenda and who were simply seeking to placate the tickling ears of the people. This is what we read about these false prophets in Jeremiah chapter 23. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. These false teachers were tampering with the worship and the word of God. They were catering the message to the appetites of their listeners. I mean, these, this is a case example of church pragmatism. Let's just style our message and our worship service in, in the way that's going to draw the most amount of people. Let's just shift how we do things ever so slightly just just to get people in the door. But dear brothers and sisters, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this second word promises. That's not how God says that he is going to build his church. The second commandment says we worship God according to how he tells us, not according to how we can reach the culture more. And we certainly want to reach our dying world, but we must never change the substance of our worship or the content of the word in order to meet any benchmarks that we prescribe for ourselves in the church. God's will is that we worship him 
on his terms. And he promises to us that he will build his church. The second application I want to make is about private worship. What does our daily prayer life look like? How are we communing with God each day? Are we seeking him in prayer and supplication? Are we searching the scriptures diligently to find eternal life, as Jesus says? One of the great emphases that the Puritans gave to us was the importance of family worship. And we desperately need to recover this within our Protestant tradition. Discipleship really begins in the home. I mean, this is the front lines of spiritual formation. And so Monday through Saturday, are we setting aside time each day to meditate on the law of God? Psalm 1 is not only a portrait of Jesus Christ, but it is a portrait of the blessed man who seeks the Lord day in and day out. God calls us in Psalm 1 to delight in and to meditate on the law of God. And remember that Jesus is the incarnation of God's law. So we are called to meditate on Christ and his gospel. And as we delight in and meditate on Jesus, we are nourished, our souls are nourished by his living water that wells up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, do you set aside time to dwell and to meditate on the riches and the glories of Christ Jesus? If you're married, are you praying for one another and seeking the Lord as one flesh? And if you have children, are you telling them of his greatness and of his awesome wonders each day? And if you're single, are you pursuing the Lord each day and taking the time to seek him in worship? By faith, as we grow in the knowledge of him each day, as we pursue our heavenly father in prayer and meditation, we will grow in conformity to the blessed image of Christ, who is our head. As we come to a close this evening, I want to leave you with this. Our worship of God will never be perfect. It will always be tainted by the sin within us. And we must admit that we often sin by making our preferences and our tastes ultimate and by making things that should be ultimate simply a matter of taste. But know that one day, our worship of the triune God will be perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. and We will worship him in fullness of joy. But take hold of this, that as you await that day, even as your prayers and praises are imperfect, Jesus himself intercedes for you, even now. In fact, in John 17, we see that Jesus prays for you and me. And we know that his prayers are perfect. They are not tainted by sin. 
One early father of the church, Ambrose of Milan, he says that when we pray, this is just a beautiful picture, and we'll close here. He says that when we pray, we are like little children frolicking about in the meadow. And we pluck a few flowers to bring home to our father because we love him. We want to make him happy. But as little children do, we inevitably grab a few weeds as we are selecting these flowers. But when we bring them home, our mother sorts out the weeds and leaves only a beautiful bouquet for our father. And so it is with prayer. We, we bring our weeds into our prayers because we are imperfect people. And yet our heavenly father is pleased to smile upon you as his little child because of our righteous advocate and our mediator and the one who intercedes on our behalf, Christ Jesus, our Lord. To him be the praise, the glory, and honor forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we, your little children, walk in your light. And would you give each of us a desire to know you? For as your word says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. And it it is in his strong name that we pray. Amen.